Welcome to Status. I am Malihera Zozon, and this is Environment in Context, produced by the editors of Jadalia Environment Page. Renewable clean sources, such as solar and wind energy, have become an important part of combating the climate crisis and its impacts. But can we divorce the environmentally friendly technologies from the conditions under which these are developed and implemented? And what happens when renewable energy development becomes synonymous with colonial expansion and political repression? Israel's feverish plans to build the largest onshore wind farm in the world in the occupied Golan Heights are a good example of why the conversation about a decarbonized economy may not be abstracted from considering prevailing power structures and systems of oppressions, including colonialism. In her recent piece in Jadalia Izin, one of our guests, Dr. Mona Dejani, details the establishment of a large-scale wind turbine farm in the occupied Golan Heights, as well as the struggle by the indigenous Syrian communities called Jolanis in Arabic to stop the project from going forward. She argues that situating the struggle in Golan Heights in relations to other struggles of indigenous communities around the world would allow us to explore how state-sanctioned green energy colonialism is replicated in places such as Western Sahara and Mexico, where environmental injustice and activism is tied to political and socioeconomic dispossession. Mona Dejani holds a PhD from the Department of Geography and Environment at London School of Economics. She is the research officer in a collaboration project between Berzeit University, London School of Economics, and the human rights organization Al-Marsat, entitled Mapping Memories of Resistance, the Untold Story of the Occupation of the Golan Heights. I spoke with Dr. Mona Dejani and Wa'il Tarabe, an activist and co-founder of Al-Marsat, the Arab Center for Human Rights in the Golan Heights, a non-profit international human rights organization located in Majdal Shams in the occupied Syrian Golan. The center was founded in 2003 by a group of lawyers and professionals in the fields of law, health, education, journalism, and engineering, along with human rights defenders and other interested community members. I began by asking Wael to compare the situation in the occupied Golan Heights to that of the occupied West Bank. I guess there is an essential difference between the occupation as we know it, as most of the world know it in the Palestinian territories and in the Golan. And actually, we are calling our situation the forgotten occupation. Since, you know, the Golan is not in the headlines, only in the cases that there are some problems with Syria and Israel and all what's happened in recent years. But usually, the Golan is a forgotten occupation. And unfortunately, in the media, it's generally and mostly called North Israel. So, first of all, we have to remind all the world that this is an occupied territory. Regarding your question about the differences between the occupied Golan and Palestine, I think we have to go back a little bit to the ethnic cleansing that happened on the eve of 1967 war. 
At that time, the Israeli side, and immediately after the occupation, forcibly displaced 95% of the Syrian population from the Golan. At that time, there were about 157,000 Syrians. From them, 131,000 were forcibly displaced. So we can say that the ethnic cleansing in the Golan was almost complete. And in comparison to Palestine, in Palestine there were bigger number of Palestinians who stayed at their lands. So this fact has its impacts on all the years of occupation that came after. And that's why when you come to the Golan, you will find today only five villages with 27,000 native Syrians. And you will find instead of the 340 villages and farms in the Golan that were all demolished by the Israeli forces, now you will find 34 illegal settlements with the same number of the native Syrians with 27,000 settlers. So the Golan, when you pass from the south to the north, you will see only remains of these tens of villages. And the settlements are enjoying the Golan because Israel occupied two-thirds of the Golan. And our villages are located in the far north of the Golan. The five five villages, villages. yes. The first settlement started to be built uh, three weeks after the occupation, actually. And the policy of these settlements was to start these settlements on as far as much from the depth of the Golan. I mean, closer to the ceasefire line. So to create a kind of belt of settlements, if you visit the Golan, the occupied Golan, from the Sea of Galilee until the north, you will find that in the middle of the Golan, there is not a lot of of settlements because this plan was just to, to capture or to create facts on the land. So in the future, they have all the time to develop the settlements project. And actually, what the the world don't know that the Israeli side is planning toward 2048, it will be 100 years to the establishment of the Israeli state. They have a plan that toward this time, there will be new 250,000 new settlers with two new cities, with an airport, with a railway, with 3,000 new uh, units in the settlements and with all the relevant infrastructure. So the future is uh, for us as a small community who remained in the villages is not very positive and we think our situation maybe will become more similar to what's going on in the West Bank and the other Palestinian, occupied Palestinian territories. So to recap, the remaining Syrian population in the occupied Golan Heights is 26,000 in five villages up north. And there are the same number of settlers at the moment in some 34 settlements. And uh, there is going to be, apparently, in honor of Trump, they are planning to build a new settlement very soon. The Jolani community just lives and controls only 
5% of this land. Exactly. Yeah. The, the whole Golan is 1% of uh, the territory of Syria, the state of Syria. So the Golan, the occupied Golan is about 1,280 square kilometers. Mm -hmm. What we control from the lands is, as you said, that's right, and it's 4.8% of the land. From these lands, we have about 21,000 donam, which are agricultural lands yes. that we have in, in the control of the native Syrians. And all the other lands are controlled by the settlers, by the Israeli army, and by the Israeli authority for lands. So this is the, the real situation on the ground. Mona, what would you add to what Wa'il said? Definitely, I think it would be just interesting to see how settler colonial states actually uh, function. And uh, just as Wa'il said, just right after the 1967 occupation, multiple studies have come out from uh, different ministries and the Jewish National Fund kind of populate the newly occupied territories. And uh, if you look at those documents, the development plans, they're uh, really like indicative of total erasure of the Syrian presence on the land and the total disregard for the remaining populations and the villages. So they were just putting aspirations for, as well as mentioned, big cities, hundreds of thousands of people, industrial zones, tourism. In all aspects of life, they were putting plans to populate the area as much as possible. What we can say is that Israel has failed to do so as much as it would like thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people to settlers to occupy the Golan, this has never happened. And today, I think the struggle is so contentious, of course, because the remaining Jaulani, the Syrian residents of the land, are combating with a very strong systematic exclusionary racist system that aims to eliminate their presence on the land, even the fact that they are there and present. And just the reflection for me as a Palestinian visiting the occupied Golden Heights multiple times throughout my youth with the, let's say, school trips, but never really understanding where are we. And as, as well mentioned, unfortunately, our education system has been systematically weakened and destroyed even that we, we didn't know as school children that we were actually going to Syrian territory. And when we were on Jabal al-Sheikh, enjoying this, the snow, uh, we were actually in occupied land in an in a ski resort that was confiscated from the Jaulanis by Israeli settlers. So I think this is another layer of this idea of forgotten occupation. We can talk about it, of course, in more details, but we are looking at how can we actually, in a way, unearth and map what's happening in the Golan as part and parcel of exclusionary and uprootness that has been carried out by the settler colonial project. Also, another issue that I think is very unique in the occupied Golan Heights is uh, Israeli education policies. You are pointing to one of the most relevant things and challenges that we face every day. Actually, we have to mention here that the five villages which remain in the Golan are populated with a majority of uh, Druze Muslim sect, except Ghajar village, whose uh, Syrians are from Alawiti uh, sect. So this fact has its uh, significance, I guess, and we can talk uh, a lot about it regarding what Muna says regarding the colonial projects, which started even prior to the establishment of the Israel state. But here I will focus on your question that in this regard, 
the Israeli occupation, they banned the work with the Syrian curriculum from the first days of the occupation in our schools and started to, to implement a new curriculum that is implemented in North Palestine, in the Galilee and Carmel, uh, within the, also the Druze community there, the Palestinian Druze there. So what is unique about this curriculum? What is unique about this curriculum that, first of all, they created a new subject, which is called the Druze heritage. And the aim of the subject is to create or to engineer a new kind of identity for the Syrians, aiming to cut their ties to the Syrian state, being Syrians and to their cultural roots with the wider Arab, Arabic culture. So the same, for example, traditions that all most of Bilad al-Sham knows, the food and the customs and the traditions and the music and all, all this, this culture is being presented to the kids in school that this is a unique Druze culture and you are not similar to those other Arabs or Muslims in Syria. You are unique, you have your own nationality, your own identity, and you are closer to us, to the Jews, than you are connected or tied to the Arabic culture. This policy was not only in this subject, even in the first years, which is a kind of sarcasm that there was a predmet or a subject called history for truth and math math mathematics for truth. So recently they improved this curriculum, but the same policy is going on. And this policy is trying or is built on, I think, a false assumption that in case that the Israelis succeeded in the process of assimilation of the Syrian natives into and Israeli citizens, then their sovereignty over the Golan will become complete. And this is not true because, as I said, those who were uprooted and forcibly displaced from the Golan, they count now more than half million native Syrians who have the right to return to their houses and lands. And the faith of the Golan is not given in the hands of those remaining five villages. There is a Syrian state that we all hope someday it will have a normal democratic political life, which will again try to or to ask to liberate the Golan and to be back under the Syrian sovereignty. So it's also we have the international you know, resolutions regarding the Golan. It is still considered an occupied territory despite the, the Trump declaration and despite the Israeli government's approval in the last week for the new settlement that will be built in the coming months. Uh, Mona, discussions of the Israeli occupied territories generally treat the Golan Heights in terms of its strategic significance, but Israel has always treated the Golan as a territory to be exploited and plundered, from its water to farming, the abundant water resources, fertile volcanic soil has made this region an ideal place for agriculture, and its topography also has made it 
an ideal place for wind turbines, which we'll talk about later. Just focusing on agriculture a bit. As of 2009, Israel's revenue from agriculture produced in the Golan reportedly amounted to roughly $143 million. The list is long, but nearly 40% of beef, 30% of apples, 32% of potatoes, corn, 50% of cherries, eggs, 6% of milk is used by Israelis. And exports from the occupied Golan primarily include a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. Where do these products end up and who is producing them? Is it done by the settlers? Again, this story of resource plunder is one that, that is seen all over the world, especially in settler colonial uh, regimes. And basically, as you've mentioned, from day one, Israel kind of sent out its experts in different fields to kind of assess the potential of the occupied Golan Heights. This idea of it being an open frontier, an open place to be explored, exploited, was so essential in the way Israel has seen the occupied Golan Heights. So from day one, uh, the idea was a lot of assessments of like how, how rich is it in groundwater? How rich, rich is its soil? What about tourism? Uh, what about industry? And they weighed all of the options in terms to exploit as much as possible these resources. And agriculture, of course, had its strong share in that plunder. Just like other occupied territories, let's say inside Israel, or Israel proper, or whether it's occupied territories in the West Bank or Gaza, which basically transformed how agriculture is seen and how the resources are managed. And the Golan Heights has always been and still is a central part in like the wider, let's say, Jordan River Basin, shared by Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, and now by Israel as well. The Golan Heights strategic importance in terms of water resources lies not only in the richness of it being kind of the center or like where actually all the water comes, you know, the snow where it falls and, and it reaches the different tributaries, the different wadis. But Israel has done a lot in order to make that water available. So it wasn't an easy, let's say, way. It has done a lot of groundwater drilling uh, and a lot of to find uh, where is the groundwater. Uh, so they've done a lot of studies around, around it, a lot of attempts and experiments, even in the northern Golan Heights where the Syrian villages remain. And uh, they've constructed artificial lakes to capture runoff and really make that water available for the settlements. And um, a lot of studies have shown that agriculture was the least economic activity to be carried out in the Golan Heights. But because it, of its ideological importance for the Zionist state, it made it happen. So it was not on economic rationale the thing to do. But again, with a settler colonial state, um, its boundaries are are really fluid. So it actually started pumping water from different areas and actually bringing it to the Golden Heights in the first days until, you know, a secure resource was established through the artificial lakes and through groundwater exploration. So it wasn't a straightforward task, but of course, fervently, the settler colonial state wanted to make sure that whatever endeavor it's making in these occupied territories, that it's making a lot of money out of them eventually. And that's where kind of agricultural production has started booming. And of course, not surprisingly, 
again, the Jaulani agricultural modes of production has been used and exploited and taken advantage by the new settlers that arrived in the Golan Heights, especially in the cultivation of the apple tree, in addition to other sources. So where that kind of knowledge of how to take care of, of olive trees and grow these trees was taken slowly who were also forced at some point losing most of their land to actually work in settlements, especially in agricultural settlements that started soon after the occupation in 1967. So that was one part of the exploitation of natural resources. That was, of course, followed by the fact that most of the land was confiscated. It, the Jaulanis also had no access, no right to enter a certain areas for, let's say, for rearing of the cattle. And it was declared uh, nature reserves, for instance. So even access was denied to these areas, limiting people's access to it and connection to that area, in addition to the fact that their livelihood started slowly eroding. So herders, for instance, are like a livelihood that doesn't exist anymore in the Golan Heights. It's really very small. While, let's say, in the illegal settlements, uh, they have amounts of land for cattle rearing of all sorts. And that is also important, very essential there. And as you said, the produce is really big. 41% of wool in the Israeli market is produced in the occupied Golan. Yeah, exactly. And just considering the huge amount of land that Israel has seized and occupied, and imagine the abundance of resources, abundance of potential that was denied to uh, the Syrian inhabitants that rightfully own these resources and have a say in, in accessing these resources. But of course, under the settler colonial mindset and with the determination for full ethnic cleansing almost uh, of the Golan Heights, the Jaulani, let's say, right to resources was, was completely denied. And uh, in its place, a very strong capitalist model was enforced on them that they eventually had to, of course, negotiate with to keep their own livelihood, agricultural livelihood alive at some extent. Mona, what about the um, wine industry? Did they take over the farms and then turn them into vineyards? Is that what they did? Yes, yes. Actually, the wineries in the Golan is one of the things that the settlers, through which the settlers were marketing the uh, agricultural products from the Golan without signing that it's, it had been in the occupied territories. Actually, they uh, control I think as much as they need from the lands, because as we said, it's empty of the, the Syrians, especially in the a little bit far away from our villages. But in this sense, may I add some element? I think it's also important about the agricultural scene in the Golan. One of the things that the limitation of our use of land is the land mines. There are in the Golan more than 2 million landmines. And some of these fields, until recent time, were located in Majdal Shams itself. So uh, nowadays we have many places in the agricultural lands that should be under our control, that is sieged and is uh, confiscated under uh, the landmines. But when the Israelis have any project, for example, they will cleanse these landmines and use it. Mm -hmm. And they started actually this process, but the priorities is starting from the surrounding areas of the settlements. But in our agricultural lands, many farmers 
do not have access and cannot use these lands as long as uh, they are full of landmines. Who is helping them to take these landmines out? Actually, what happened in Majd al-Shams, that uh, Al-Marsad, the Arab human rights organization, the only one in the Golan, started to correspondence with all the Israeli authorities and demand the uh, removal of this field mine from the village itself. After a few years, they cleansed this uh, military base that was surrounded with uh, landmines and we had victims because of that and kids who were killed because of these landmines. But they moved this military uh, base to the other side of the village, a little bit far from the houses. And the old one is still in a situation of standby. There are no soldiers in it, but it's still under the authority of the Israeli army. Mm. So this is one of the things that we succeeded to We made a small success in this regard, but regarding the agricultural lands, it is still the same situation. Um, is it true, Mona, that 30% of Israeli water comes from the occupied Golan? Yes, yes, it's true. And uh, due to the fact that uh, the Golan Heights, again, is it's at, say, at the heart of the Jordan River Basin, and uh, the fact that the tributaries of the Jordan, the Banyas, the Dan, and Hasboni are at close proximity to the Golan Heights. Actually, Banyas is in the occupied Golan Heights. Dan, uh, or Liddan, as it's called in Arabic, is also bordering the occupied Golan Heights. So it's uh, on the border between Syria and Israel. And Hasboni is in Lebanon. So imagine the tributaries of the Jordan, the main tributaries are coming in that region, in that geographic location, in addition to the to Mount Hermon and the snowfall that also comes down through rivers and wadis. And all of it used to go down to Lake Tiberias to replenish it. Today, of course, because of all of the, the artificial lakes that illegal Israeli settlements have built in the, in the occupied Golan Heights and because of Israel's constant project to pump water out of Lake Tiberias uh, to irrigate lands and develop uh, illegal settlements in the Naqab, in the Negev, in the south. This kind of assemblage of pumping water out of the basin has been kind of a signature policy of the Israeli state, and it continues to do so. And from a strategic point of view, Israel is seen to hold the occupied Golan Heights very dear because of that fact that 30% of its water resources comes from outside its borders. And the case is the same as well alongside the basin with other occupied territories that it holds. Since so many products come from Golan Heights, as I said, fruits, vegetables, dairy products, meat, and they're also exported to Europe, United States, Australia, mm. are they subject to the boycott divestment sanctions? As far as I know, they are not. And uh, correct me well if, if I'm wrong. Uh, and I think they should definitely be. But I don't know how strong and how how it, is the campaign actually linking between occupied territories in the Golan. Wael? I agree with Muna. Actually, this also comes with the, in line with the whole approach toward the Golan as forgetting the occupation. And only in a few occasions the Golan was mentioned when the people talked or there were uh, even even the UN statements regarding the Palestinian territories. For example, when talked about the expansion of settlements, the Golan was not mentioned. And recently, 
after a huge work with Palestinian human rights organizations and activists. For the first time, the Golan Heights was mentioned in such a statement from the UN that it's also an occupied territory. So, uh, yes, regarding the products from the Golan, up till now, uh, just in a few occasions, there was, uh, it was mentioned that it's coming, these products from occupied territory. How has this occupation impacted farming for the Syrian population in general? How do these farmers make a living? It's a very very dire situation of, for the Jaulani agricultural production because I would say like there was imagine trans like really tectonic shift in uh, one day after the other after the 1967 war where as a farmer you were part of a, a state that was at that moment in time uh, giving a lot of incentives for agricultural production and in addition to uh, the specificity of Jaulani agriculture in general that was really one of one of the best models of embracing technological advances, in addition also the agricultural knowledge that has been passed on through generation and the fact that it was such a, an open um, sector, especially in the Jolan, because people were willing to try new products and new produce, just like the apple products in the 1940s. So in a way, you can imagine 1960s where the farmers were really getting a strong foot in agricultural production, having, you know, a, a very stable uh, marketing uh, strategy that kind of exported their apples to and, and other produce. It's full of, it was a, a very wide range of produce that the Jaulanis have cultivated and they would export them to Egypt and to other Arab states, even to the Gulf. And at some point in 1967, they were forced to be face-to-face with a very exclusionary agribusiness. At that point, it was starting to be more neoliberal uh, model of the Israeli agriculture. So they had to face this very much exclusionary system that didn't see them as equal, that didn't see them as, maybe they only saw them as mere uh, laborers, workers in the newly established farms and plants in the occupied areas. So it was very critical, uh, I would say. And in addition to that, the fact that Jaulani also uh, have succeeded in not only remaining in agriculture until today, but they have also devised so many tactics and strategies to keep their agriculture alive by focusing on the cultivation of the apple tree and uh, really transforming thousands of farms of land, uh, rehabilitating that, that land to be suitable for orchards, for apple orchards, especially in the 70s, starting, let's say, after the occupation in the 80s, uh, that required also that they reclaim their rights to water. And slowly they have, slowly but surely and successfully, they have managed to claim water rights, protecting lands from complication, and also maintain a very fragile uh, economic activity, which is the agricultural production. Because there's a big monopoly in the Israeli agribusiness model that's very much ideological because it has its roots in the Zionist legacy of uh, making the deserts green and turning to the land. So that was kind of the thinking and ideology behind it. So these institutions were there during these Zionism times uh, were kind of, of course, extended to when the state was created in 48. And what Wael was referring to uh, early on about how the Israeli state started, you know, telling the Jaulanis, uh, the Druze, you know, that you are not Arabs. Uh, you have your distinct identity and we are close to you. We are your allies. They started, you know, developing curriculum, 
pour it through. The same was, similar thing would happen in agriculture, was that they were saying, they had reports in the 70s talking about the Druze agriculture, as if, you know, the Druze would have a specific type of agriculture that is different from what another Syrian Muslim or Christian or did agriculture. So in that kind of way, like they started to make this, uh, this idea that even Druze agriculture is specific to the Druze, which is completely ridiculous. But the fact, I think that the Shaulani agriculture has succeeded in under all of these discriminatory, unequal and unjust conditions in terms of access to water, access to land, access to government support, because agriculture, as we know, without government support and subsidies will not. Uh, so under all of these exclusionary conditions, uh, the Jaulanis have had a success in staying visible on their lands, planting their crops that they're very proud of. That's part of their identity and part of who, who they are today. If you go to the Golan Heights and you don't know about the Jaulani apples, it's, it doesn't work. Like everybody knows, everybody's waiting for the Jaulani apples in season, even Palestinians from far would go up to try it, to help in picking in the harvest. Uh, same up with cherries, which is in this season. People will, will come from all over Palestine to participate in supporting families or actually in, in picking up the cherries and paying for them for that produce. So it's a story of resilience, but it's, it's, a, it's a difficult story as well, because agriculture, unfortunately, is today very very much market control. There are monopolies around it. So in a way, I think the Jaulanis are trying to be part of the system in order to make sure that agriculture is profitable to a certain extent so they can continue to do so. And then the wind turbine project is coming at this very critical time when agriculture now for a few years has been, farmers have been actually cultivating at a loss. And the wind turbine project comes with lucrative, you know, financial benefits to to in terms of if you lease your lands to the to the wind turbine company you will get more than by growing apples so it's coming at this very very fragile moment that's dr mona dijani speaking about a systemic trend by israel to grab syrian natural resources in the occupied syrian golan heights i'm also speaking with wild tarabe an activist based in Majdal Shams in the occupied Syrian Golan. We'll talk more after a break. Israel has opened up a new frontier in the so-called green energy by building wind turbines in the heart of the five remaining Syrian villages in the occupied Golan. You write, Mona, and I'm quoting here, the Jolanis are currently fighting settler colonialism under the guise of green energy development. The wind turbine farm reflects a systematic trend by Israel to grab Syrian natural resources in the occupied Golan Heights and threatens the rootedness of the Jolanis. 
Meanwhile, I wanted to ask you first, can you tell us about this project? How far back does it go? Well, actually, uh, this project started a few years ago. And uh, we have to say that it's not the only one in the occupied Golan. There were about 11 projects for wind farms in the whole Golan. The first, by the documents that we got when investigating this project in Al Marsad, uh, we found that it started uh, since 2008 with another company who started to study the area and the preparation stage of these projects. At that time, we, the, I mean the population here, the, the native Syrians, they didn't know about these projects. And after that, it was a very long and complicated story about these companies that the first one bankrupted and it was sold. But eventually, in 2013, the Energix company, they uh, buy this project and they continue to work on it. So this is the history of it. And here we have to mention that the awareness of what these projects means was not enough among locals. For native Syrians, it was not understood until recently, and I mean until maybe 2017. Uh, from that moment, it started the whole story to be a public question, a public issue in the community, and we started our uh, protest against it. Can you also talk about how some uh, Jolanis in the beginning, because they did not understand these contracts or the, the documents they were getting, they signed for their land to be used for these wind farms, but later on they protested it and they said that they didn't know what exactly they were signing. Yes, so here we have another fact and why they chose this place. Actually, we have here to highlight a very important thing that this project is located in between three villages, Majd al-Shams, Mas'ada, and Bukata, and in the heart of our agricultural lands. It will occupy about 3,500 donors, about one-fifth of the available, uh, available lands to the native Syrians. So the question why the Israelis choose this place and they have the whole Golan is empty from native Syrian population. So the main point is, first of all, that indeed this area, there is a very, there is wind, a lot of wind on the hills. And the second uh, reason is that for these companies, it's easier to deal with private lands than to deal with governmental authorities. So for them, if they come to a, a farmer and they sign a contract with him, that's it. Their connection is with him, and it's much more easier than to deal with the authority of lands in Israel and all this bureaucratic process for them. Regarding the farmers who signed contracts, also we have to mention the context, because we know that farmers all the time are very aware of the dangers from the occupation toward land. So why this time they didn't feel that it is dangerous? And I think the reason is comes on the basis of what Muna described before. The benefits from agriculture as economical income to the farmers is becoming less and less with the years. 
And the markets that were open to the people of the Golan, starting from the Palestinian markets before the first intifada, and the markets in Damascus that were closed in 2011, it's becoming for them harder how to market their apples and cherries. So this company and this project came in this sensitive time to these farmers to tell them that you have easy money, we just want to take 600 meters from your land and we built this this turbine and you can cultivate your lands again as as before so and you will get maybe 15 to 20 thousand dollars a year for it so this easy money i think and this simplified explanation of things without mentioning any side effects or any negative impacts or anything of that also combined with the absence of knowledge and the absence of awareness of these projects leads to the fact that farmers signed these contracts and at that time there were no social refusal to this uh, project. Mm. So this is the process that we are living recently in the last three years that uh, nowadays these farmers understood that they were misleaded they were not explained enough about the impacts, the negative impacts of this project. And they thought that they, they were investing in their own lands. They didn't imagine that the impacts of this project is collective. It's not limited in your small piece of land because it will impact even the villages and it will impact Majdal Shams for people who don't have lands even because of its infrasound uh, waves that comes to the, this distance. It's just one kilometer of the first neighborhood of Majdal Shams. So the process of trying to withdraw from the contracts started a few months ago and it's going on these days. Mm. You're right, Mona. The project is a calculated attempt by the Israeli state to bluster its image as a haven for green technology and innovation. The project would increase Israel's renewable energy sources to reach 17% by the year 2013, a commitment made by the state to meet global emission reduction set by the 2015 Paris Agreement. And you add, contrary to its decades-long greenwashing campaign to brand itself as a green and eco-friendly quote-unquote startup nation, the Israeli state has one of the biggest per capita global ecological footprint with its heavy reliance on fossil fuel, particularly coal, for its energy consumption. And this is further tarnished by its document record of environmental rights violation and destruction in the occupied Palestinian and Syrian territory and its warfare created pollution in the region. Can you talk about how this also fits within the colonial ambitions that yeah. Israel has um, yeah. has pursued since its inception. Yeah, so basically it's just a continuation of resource funder that kind of develops as technology advances as well. And as we know that Israel has been branding itself as the leader of technology in, let's say, drip irrigation, in uh, solar energy, in desalination, so many different fields that are very resource dependent. Uh, but the fact that 
that we all know that technology is not apolitical, that technology doesn't really, its impacts are, especially in this context of settler colonialism, it definitely has a negative impacts on, on communities, on occupied people, or whether it's marginalized communities or or anybody who doesn't fit into the model that the state or regime that wants it to fit. So basically, the idea that Israel today is exporting these technologies to different parts of the world is, has been really problematic. There has been so many campaigns to uh, expose you know, how Israel at one end is promoting itself as the green nation startup. Uh, green startup nation and at the other hand exploiting without any uh, control and accountability exploiting natural resources in occupied territories and causing uh, environmental harm in places it has been on, in war with like Lebanon so basically what we're saying is green energy has now been the next frontier in how Israel and different let's say even different colonial states, settler colonial states have dealt with this new kind of interest and investment in uh, green technologies, whether it's solar panel uh, farms in the Negev and elsewhere. I'm just saying also on a global level, there is now widespread interest in green energy and kind of the rise of what is called green colonialism. So whether it's donor states and big superpowers investing millions and billions of dollars in uh, projects in their former, let's say, colonies, former colonized areas and, and countries, and whether it's Israel also blurring, you know, the boundaries of what is illegal and what is illegal, because as well has mentioned in the beginning, the Golan Heights is seen as an extension of Israeli territory. It's seen as the Alps of Israel, uh, same as how Israel portrayed the occupied territories, whether it's uh, like Judea and Samaria, for instance. That is another way of it, how, how it frames it, as if it's in the natural biblical extensions of its land, that it doesn't have to justify how, why and how it plunders its resources. So same has happened here where it's seen as well has mentioned it comes as this very much positive benign intervention wind energy is good farmers and landowners having a steady income seems a very lucrative uh, deal uh, that people of course under decades of disenfranchisement decades of economic despair looking for any straw to stay on the land you would agree to it because you're calculating that, oh, this this might mean I, I will have income to feed my family. And as well as said, because wind turbines are not really, we see them in other places. Uh, they've never been kind of in our neighborhoods, in our landscapes. Wind turbines actually are huge. Each turbine is huge. It will take vast, I don't know how much, and well, maybe knows the details of, uh, of the area it takes, but the wind turbines are of huge proportion. Imagine in 5% of the remaining land of the Golan Heights, you have 95% of occupied land. And then 5% where actually people, imagine there are five villages with built-up area with the remaining small percentage of agricultural lands in comparison to its total area. In addition to, you know, all of the plans for the Jaulanis to expand, of course, because their population is expanding, they would need uh, more uh, residential areas, housing. Uh, they also want to, to retain their, their agriculture. And it's not because of the lack of land. It's basically because Israel's settler colonial project prohibits the Jaulanis from uh, investing, expanding on lands that are beyond this 5%. In addition to that, in this 5%, you're now putting wind turbines that not only are environmentally, that has a lot of complications on health, wildlife, on mental well-being even, 
But in addition to that, they are at the heart of the agricultural lands that have been such a struggle for the Jaulanis to remain on them because of all of the different different uh, reasons we've mentioned before. So imagine the suffocation you would feel in, in, in a land that is vast. The Jaulan is such a vast land. The settler colonial project suffocates you in it. And this is kind of the last or one of the most recent tactics of this suffocation. Just one point quickly that it is also seen as, you know, a private sector intervention. Uh, so that also, as, as I said, kind of relieves the pressure, in a way, responsibility of the state to say, oh, it's mine. But although, as well, also mentioned, you know, the project, if it tries to go to government, so-called government or state land, it will face more complications because of security, because of so many other reasons why it's such an easy bait to go to a private land and have this kind of consensual agreement. You agree to rent your land, I will use it, and it stops there. So, Wael, what are the environmental impacts of these turbine farms? And what about consequences for the health and safety of Syrian communities who live there? Actually, now, nowadays, there is so much criticism toward the wind energy all over the world. Because of this project, we, um, we studied many experiences in, in everywhere in Europe and in the USA. And there are general impacts everywhere. Uh, for example, the noise, first of all. Secondly, the, the, the infrasound waves. These waves that are not heard, but they affect our bodies. And about one-third of the population everywhere, the statistics say that one-third can feel dizziness and people can, uh, their bodies of the people can be uh, influenced by them. Pregnant women also, some studies say that uh, it can affect the newborn kids uh, in their concentration, abilities and so on. There are a lot of researches about that. We can talk about the flickering also. But as Muna said, the size of these the plant turbines in the Golan are the biggest in the world. Their height is between 200 and 220 meters. So all the turbines in Israel up till now, the highest of them are 140 meters, something like that. These will be the biggest ones. If we talk about the negative impacts and influence, we have to take the certain conditions in each area. For example, in our case, as Muna said, they will limit uh, the expansion of the villages because we are surrounded. If you look to the, to the map, for example, to Majdal Shams, from the east we have the ceasefire line that just a few meters from the houses. From the north we have Hermon Mountain, Jabal al-Sheikh, and recently the Israeli authorities confiscated 82,000 dunams for what is called the Hermon Resort for it. And that this way, we cannot expand to the north. And to the west, we have navigative settlement. And to the south, we have our agricultural lands. So this project was built according to the European regulations that says that it's enough to be far away from the residential areas by 500 meters. Actually, this is being now discussed very seriously all over the world, that this distance is not enough. enough. And in our case, it's from Majd al-Shams, for example, it's 1,000 meters. But nowadays, even two months ago, the Israeli Ministry of Health had a new recommendations that says 
in the case of wind farms turbines, which height is between 100 and 200 meters, they have to recheck the impacts and the influence in a radius of two kilometers. So in this case, if they will find within a year after they build this project, that uh, actually, yes, they have to uh, be far away from residential areas by two kilometers, that means that two-thirds of Majd al-Shams will become illegal and will become in this area of influence of this project. So these are the things that we are very concerned about. And I have here to mention that Israel have no experience in the renewable uh, energy at all. We can talk about the US and Europe who have an experience for three decades minimum. But for the Israelis, it's just they are copying these uh, things from Europe and trying to exploit it here. And in our situation, actually, I have to mention here that Muna helped us a lot in the process of protesting this project uh, because uh, we had uh, her uh, professional opinion on the anthropological influence of this project on the Syrians here. And what is unique here, something that does not exist in other cases, that the agricultural lands is not only a place to where only the farmers go and cultivate the lands, no. It's a place where we spend most of our times from all the villages. It's the lengths of the villages because the villages are overcrowded. And this is a result of the policies of the occupation that does not do not give permissions to, to expand the villages. So it's very overcrowded. Most of the people spend most of their times in these lands. Even if it is not economically worth holding it, people even trying to buy a small piece of land just to take the kids and the family there and to spend the time. So we can say that the turbines will be located in between a populated area. It's not true and it's not uh, the fact that it's away uh, with one kilometer from Majd al-Shams and one kilometer and 600 meters from Masada village. This is not relevant to our uh, reality here. This project is slated to be built by Israeli company Energix Renewable. According to the WHO Profits, the independent research center that focuses on the occupation industry, Israeli settlers are also set to profit from the development of wind energy in the occupied Golan through the leasing of their agricultural land to the developers, and in some cases, settlements are even offered minority holding in these projects. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Vael? Yes. Actually, in this project, we found also a kind of discriminatory policies. For example, the closest settlement to Majd al-Shams, Nimrod, have maybe seven or ten families. That's it. There was four turbines from both sides of this settlement. And in the process of approving this project, the head of uh, the settlement's uh, council in the occupied Golan said that, and we have the documents on that, that he does not agree to put these turbines close to the new settlement. And if 
the company will delete this for turbines, then he will agree to the wind farm project in our lands, in the agricultural lands. This was his condition to give his approval as an authority in the Golan. So this is one side. The other side, some settlements have made also contracts with companies, not only Energics. There is a project, for example, now is being in the process of building it with a company called Inlight. It's about 700 meters, the border of the project from Bukatha village. The deal was done with Elroom settlement. But in the same time, there is uh, some settlers who are opposing this project. And uh, for their reasons, of course, it's not because of the limitation of the lands, because they have all the lands that they need, but because they think they came to the Golan, to such a nice uh, place, which is not industrial, which is unique, which, which is clean, and these projects will spoil their lives. And other reason that they explained in the process of objections in Jerusalem that they think that this project will not really benefit the economy of the state. Mm. And the third reason was that the turbines may consist a danger to the Israeli soldiers, especially those projects which are located close to the ceasefire line, because the Israeli army has a lot of offensive operations towards Syria and they are afraid for their soldiers. So there is a movement among the, the settlers in the Golan who also trying to protest or opposing these projects. Is it true that the General Electric is also involved in building these uh, wind farms? Actually, I don't have a very uh, accurate answer, but we know, we suspect, or we know by the documents that we have read that the company will buy the uh, turbines from European companies. It could be Vestas or other companies. We are not sure. And the, co the company didn't mention uh, from where they will bring all the, the sophisticated equipments of turbines from which company exactly. What would you add, Mona? Just two things about like mobilization on the on the ground. Again, like it shows how the community has risen against it and has seen, you know, the danger of these projects. And I think what the piece I wrote uh, tried to say is that, as well as said, the agricultural lands where where the wind turbines are planned uh, to be uh, installed come at the heart of of Jaulani life. Like it's in the middle of their land. Their lands. And the agriculture that uh, they produce there is not a mere economic activity that they really depend on for their livelihood. On the contrary, sometimes and a lot of seasons, people will actually grow apples at a loss. But kind of the pleasure and the enjoyment of being on the land, eating from its produce, sharing that produce with others and continuing to have that apple symbol there and strong, like really moves people to be on the land. And again, this comes at the heart of their way of life, uh, comes at the heart of what they consider to be, that what makes them belong to the land. Because if you imagine like after so many decades of being considered stateless, uh, because the Jaulanis, uh, we haven't mentioned that in the 1980s, they have refused Israeli 
assimilation tactic, which was that to, to give them first Israeli identity cards and in the process of giving them Israeli citizenship, mm-hmm. which the Shaolanis have refused. And they had uh, they, there was a six month strike in the 1980s to refuse that and any annexation that Israel decided to do in 1980s. So in a way, what was the result of this strike was that they have refused the citizenship. But Israel has kind of punished the Zolanis by issuing them with travel documents that state that they are not Syrians, but it says that they are unidentified. So imagine kind of the dehumanization process and the detachment process this creates in not only the generation that witnessed that, but the generations to come, which are the youth of the Shaolan today, which are facing another crisis, which is the Syrian crisis since 2011. Again, the project is so dangerous because it comes at this time where there is no stable ground to stand on. And even your only way to kind of be on the land and enjoy belonging to a certain place has been denied for you. And this is why we see in the mobilization a lot of young people with very powerful and sentimental messages about that this is our land, this is our air, and we should be in control of it. And this is the case, I would say, for a lot of communities around the world, especially occupied communities, like in occupied Western Sahara or other places, or even in Mexico, which is a very unequal society that I've mentioned in the paper that say, okay, we are not against green energy per se, but once it comes from the community and it is being done in in direct consultation with the community, and it's based on the needs and respects the right of resourcehood of of these communities, that we can think of green energy as being completely green. If we only see it green just because it benefits the settler state and really disregards, uh, you know, the plight of the Zaulanis in staying on their land, it, it really disregards the fact that they are living in a very confined space, overcrowded spaces, that they have been under decades of total exclusion and disenfranchisement, and then come with this project that will add another weight on their shoulder. This is one thing that's really striking about what's going on. And I think definitely like it requires like more attention uh, because it's such a global issue. It, it's a case of maybe other communities that this is where solidarity can can happen as well. Wael, how significant are these legal battles, these protests, not only for your community, but also other human rights organizations in the occupied territories in Palestine and other parts of the world? Yes, I think this project especially came to produce many side problems. For example, as we know what is called the corporate capture, it's policies that we can witness everywhere in the world. But if we take our specific case in the Golan, we can see how the company and its brokers and agents who are locals and who work with the company tried to make a rift in the community between people, between those who signed contracts and to point at them as the source of this problem. And from the other side, the the whole community will consider them as enemies. So this war against the community even came to such a places, which is very interesting. For example, Al-Marsat, the human rights organization here, started with a report investigating this project. And within this report, we try just to, to tell the story to the locals. We interviewed people, we interviewed professionals, even settlers, and people from the company itself. And once we published this report in Arabic and in English to the local community, 
We found that the company had submitted a lawsuit against Al-Marsad and with the, the pretext that Al-Marsad is calling for boycotting Israel and Al-Marsad is anti-Zionist, is supporting anti-Zionist activists in the community. And the company asked as a compensation from Al-Marsad about 900,000 shekels, which is more than our whole budget for a year and a half for our organization. It means it's uh, an attempt to silence Al-Marsad as an organization who is working for the benefit of the local people. Also, they targeted five activists from uh, the Golan Heights and with the same accusations. And right now we are in the middle of this process in the Israeli courts. The significance of these things that this is the first ever time that any Israeli side is using the anti-boycott law, which started from 2011 in Israel. There is such a law that gives any side from any company in Israel, for example, uh, they can suit any side, a Palestinian or Syrian, who calls for boycott and ask for a compensation for the damage that they have in their businesses. But it was never used. This is the first time that it is used in the courts. And in a case, if they succeed to prove it, all the human rights organizations in Palestine and some that outside Palestine will be influenced by this precedent judgment. Mona, in your piece, you say the key to their activism, meaning Jolanis, is coalition building with Arab and international human rights organizations to pressure Israel to adhere to international law and protect the Jolani population and their fragile ecosystem. What's next? Because this is far from over. I can say from, uh, let's say, an outsider, but also very much a person who is really attached <laughs> to the Golan Heights, that I think there's such great mobilization. And I think this is what we need at this point, where the young generation is kind of taking over in a way and learning and relearning from the previous experience of all the generation who have fought against the Israeli occupation, against confiscation of land, and also the confiscation of natural resources. And they're continuing with this mode, but using new technology, social media, and being really present online. And I think this, this is a, a very strong, that is coupled with the legal action that Al-Marsad is also spearheading, and the fact that environmental consciousness worldwide is really understanding that green does not always equal positive, and we have to really look into the structural uh, elements that are behind all of these new deals, new green deal, or wh whatever mm -hmm. is being put on the table, uh, large, let's say, solar panel projects and villages, they call them, like desert tech and other, other projects that are happening around the world. So we need to kind of build coalitions and understand how these projects are all part and parcel of excluding people from their natural resources. So rather than really being for the benefit of communities and for the environment, it's actually, you know, another cover up for continuing illegal action, violations, whether environmental or violation, like in the case of Israeli project against the occupied Palestinians and Syrians. So I think, I believe there's so much potential for us from different walks of life to speak up and build solidarity and kind of really continue uh, to make noise about what's happening there. But at the same time, 
also focus on supporting the communities that we claim to to force. So not only by by sharing a tweet. I think this is really important, but at mm-hmm. the same time is to is to also find ways to really support the communities and their struggles. So whether it's legal advice, legal support, whether it's like what you're doing here, which is exposing it to a wider audience in English to see what's been happening in the Golan Heights for decades and what's at stake today with this new devastating project. Well, regarding your question to Muna, uh, it worth worth mentioning that the the ESCR, the Economic, Social and Cultural Rights Network, is a network in which there are more than 300 organizations from all over the world. Actually, we joined their working group, which is called the Corporate Capture. Recently, Al-Marsad, we joined them and they had a few months ago a conference in Al-Haq, in Ramallah. I think this work is very important and it's trying to make a network, worldwide network, to learn from others' experiences and to learn the characteristics of these Uh, systematic abusing and exploiting all over the world. There is very similar characteristic everywhere that uh, if we compare, for example, our case today in the wind turbine project in the Golan, it's very similar to projects that in Latin America and other places in the world that are going on. I think uh, it was uh, following up with the, the work of this network It's very serious work, and they are trying to correspond and to influence uh, the U.S. organizations and governments all over the world and to raise awareness and to produce a kind of platform to which every side, every party all over the world can contribute by the knowledge and the experience from their own lives. So this is, uh, yeah, for this, and how to struggle together how to combine all these bodies for justice. Dr. Mona Dejani is a research officer in a collaboration project between Berset University, London School of Economics and Al-Marsad entitled Mapping Memories of Resistance, the Untold Story of the Occupation in the Golan Heights. Wa'al Tarabe is an activist and co-founder of Al-Marsad, the Arab Center for Human Rights in the Golan Heights, an independent, non-profit, international human rights organization located in Majdal Shams in the occupied Syrian Golan. To read Dr. Mona Dejani's paper about Israel's plans to build the largest onshore wind farm in the world in the occupied Syrian Golan Heights and the struggle by the indigenous Syrian community to stop Israel from moving forward with the project, please visit jadmagazine.com. You may also visit Al-Marsad website at golan-marsad.org.